Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start, Start saving, saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. She's so alone. And she's in her brain that's all mixed up. And I, I just want to get her out of there. Because she's a prisoner in that room. In the United States, more than a third of reported deaths from COVID-19 have occurred in nursing homes. And it's not hard to guess why. You've got old and sick people with multiple chronic conditions living together in an enclosed space. It's ideal for the spread of a deadly virus. So was this disaster inevitable? Or do we simply have too many Americans in nursing homes? This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist, a bioethicist, and a health policy expert. And I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a bioethicist, philosopher, and historian. In this episode, how should we care for older people? And what can we learn about elder care and end-of-life care from the COVID-19 pandemic? Zeke, I've been thinking about how Margaret Mead said adolescence was an invented period of life. At one time, kids used to go right into work. Now we have adolescence, which is sort of this middle ground, maybe when you're a teenager in your early 20s, when you're preparing for real life. And in something like that way, we have this category of the elderly or elderly people, also a time of life that has been kind of invented. Uh, Jonathan, I think you're right to some degree that this has come about in the 20th century. We have to remember in 1900, the median life expectancy in most developed countries was something in the low 40s, 42, 43 years old. And today, you know, in the United States, it's 79. In Japan, it's 84. So you do have a lot of people who are living many more years after they've retired from their job and don't have children anymore and don't really have a lot of responsibilities. And that creates the elderly, which we didn't have before. And also, uh, the part of this is the medicalization of life stages. For example, feminist bioethicists talk about the medicalization of birth that kind of says to mothers, you don't really know how to do this. The obstetrician knows how to do this. And yet, people have been having babies for a long time before they're obstetricians. You know, similarly, this idea, I think, applies to old age now. I agree. You know, early in the 1900s, Sir William Osler, probably the greatest physician in that part of uh, American and really world history, used to say that pneumonia was the old man's best friend. And when you got old and, you know, a little doddery, you got a pneumococcal pneumonia and you died. But today we've got a vaccine against pneumococcal pneumonia. We have antibiotics. And so there's this whole period of chronic illness and you've got expertise in geriatricians managing those kind of people. It's taken out of the hands of family. You also have these institutions, whether nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities, where older people go either to live or to recover over a prolonged period of time from their illness. And they take care of people, not the family. So with all these institutions, we face this terrible irony. So many people who made the difficult decision to move a loved one into a nursing home so they can receive better care have now had to watch as these nursing homes turned into ground zero for a deadly pandemic. 
That's what happened to Terry Green and her mom, Dina. Um, My mom's name is Dina Green. She was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She's 88 years old. And she's got a slightly sarcastic personality. Uh, She can uh, crack jokes and be really funny. And uh, she was an excellent baker. Five years ago, we started noticing that uh, she was forgetting. And it was more than just... Uh, a little bit. And, uh, you know, she would forget how to turn off the stove and she'd forget where the bathroom was, or she was back in time looking for her sister to take her home on the bus. And my sister in New Jersey, they kept her as long as she could. It's, you know, the typical story, I think. And then, and then eventually Dina needed more care than her family could provide. She couldn't get up the stairs anymore. She couldn't cook for herself. She couldn't bathe herself. She couldn't drive, obviously. She became incontinent. It's like watching a young one again, because it's not that she's a baby, but she doesn't know that she can't do something anymore. But it's not like she doesn't remember us. That's the weird thing. She's not totally gone. And I I don't know if she ever will be, but she's gone enough where a lot of times she's not in the same time zone that we're in. So they made the difficult decision to move Terry's mom into a nursing home. It was hard because my mom fought it every step of the way. Of course, who wouldn't fight it? No one wants to go there, but... But they got her into a good facility in New Jersey near Terry's sister. And she's happier if there was entertainment and things to do and she could play games with them and watch old movies. She loves it, but it's been so long and she can't now. So it's just, she's very depressed. We were all nervous in February. We kept hearing that one third of the people getting it are from a nursing home. About the end of March, things started getting dire in my head. And then it was just a a matter of when is she going to get it? I hope she doesn't get it. Maybe she won't get it. But she, you know, but she got it. After Dina tested positive for COVID-19, she was moved to another nursing home about 30 miles away, a facility with a special COVID wing. That was at the end of May. But Terry's mom started suffering the effects of COVID long before she actually had the disease. The minute she hit lockdown, the minute they said everyone's in the room and nothing, there's nothing today. Because I used to call her and say, what did you do today? Did you have the entertainment today? She goes, oh, I didn't feel like it. Or, oh, yes, it was very good. I really like this singer. They're very enjoyable. The minute that stopped and everything stopped, uh, she started mentally getting worse by the minute. It's been three, three and a half months, and uh, it's one room that she's in. No matter where she's at, it's just one room, and she stays in there for the most part all the time, so it's just difficult. She had an episode at the nursing home, the COVID unit, where she said, I blame all you kids for this. I need to get out of here. It's heartbreaking because you hear her talk on the phone, and she's crying, and she's begging to leave. She'll get like that, and then she gets very low and depressed again for some days until she builds up enough that she just wants to get out because she's a prisoner in that room. In some ways, Dina's been lucky. The worst she had was a mild fever, and by now, she's essentially asymptomatic. But she's still in isolation for the foreseeable future. My mom doesn't understand why she can't be at home because she took care of her father. Terry's mom, Dina, was barely out of high school when her own mother died of stomach cancer. And just a month later, 
Her father had a paralyzing stroke. So when my mom was 20, she was raising my aunt. She was caring for her father, who was an invalid at this point. And then she married and had two kids. Terry was three years old when her grandfather passed away. And I could see the frustration, even as a child, that it was so difficult for my mom to handle everything. I don't even know if they even had nursing homes like they do now, but it was never an option for them to do that. It was just what was going to happen in their home. And uh, I think it was one of the bravest things I've ever seen my mom do, because even though she was so young, she handled it. And that's just what you did then. Of course, this family history has had a big impact on the way Terry feels about what her mom is going through right now. She's so alone, and she's in her brain that's all mixed up. And I, I just want to get her out of there. You know, I just want her to be okay. And I can't do what she did for her father. I can't do for her. And that's the that's a really it's a big guilt. I heard her laugh about three days ago for the first time in three months. I heard her actually laugh. I told her, okay, well, I'll call you back, and she was laughing. I didn't want to call her back because I didn't want to not hear her laugh anymore. So I didn't call her again that day because I didn't want, I wanted to hold on to her laughing. These elderly people are just so isolated that if the COVID doesn't kill them, the isolation is killing them. And hear your parents suffer because they're so isolated and they're begging you to get them out and you can't. It's, it's really hard. There's a lot of ways from dying from COVID. That's all. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Zeke, it was really hard for me to hear Terry's story. Not because my mother, who died at the age of 99 back in 2016, and was you know in the middle of the pandemic in a nursing home, but I very much identify with the frustration and guilt that she felt about putting her mother in a nursing home. Now, in my mother's case, she was completely cognitive, cognitively intact, uh, but she had uh, several medical problems. We didn't have a setup in our home that would have worked for her. 
So we put her in a nursing home. It, it was not an easy decision, but she agreed, and it was a it was a good nursing home. But it had the usual limitations of, of being in that kind of setting. Yeah, it. I don't know one family that's done it where it's not wrenching and where it isn't. It's typically a medical problem. You heard Terry. It was the case of you know her mom's forgetfulness, incontinence, uh, just very difficult to care for her and your case it's you know managing multiple medical problems yeah and then you 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 pile on to the really hard decision that families have to make about nursing homes the pandemic situation i mean it's to me it's just unimaginable but you know we're going to get some reaction probably to the fact that you're doing this podcast with me because of your famous article years ago in which you made a reference to really not wanting aggressive medical treatment after a certain age. I think, what do you have to say about that? (laughs) Well, I do loathe the image that Terry painted of her mother. I mean, I fear that enormously, being incontinent, not remembering where your kids take joy in such simple things as you're laughing for a day. I have to say that just sounds like a totally deprived life to me. That's not the way I want to live, and that's not the way I want my children to remember me. And I I will say, you know, when I think about my parents, my father, he ended up being diagnosed with a brain tumor, got that diagnosis, and he decided that's it. That's gone. And literally 10 days later, he was dead. And I think it, you know, he totally controlled that. He was like, I ain't living with this brain cancer. And that's that. And I've had a good life and no more. You know what? What struck me uh, also with my mother's case was that there were so many issues that came up after she was in the nursing home that were still really hard to deal with. Those complexities of taking care of older people are the expertise of Dr. Joanne Lin. I first met Joanne back in 1979 when I joined the faculty of George Washington University, and she was running an experimental bioethics course. Yeah, and I know Joanne from the mid-1980s, There were only four groups doing research on how to improve end-of-life care. She was down here in Washington, and we were up in Boston, both trying to figure out how to improve care for dying patients. Since then, she's worked for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. And these days, she's a health and aging policy fellow in the office of New York Representative Tom Swazi and a policy analyst at Altarum, a nonprofit healthcare research and consulting group. But what I really do is to try to improve care for people living with serious chronic illnesses and disabilities in old age. So my real agenda is making it safe for you to grow old. Why do you think we had such a bad COVID experience in nursing homes in this country? Well, it was the convergence of lots of things. There were big problems with nursing homes ahead of COVID, especially on staffing. And staffing actually has been the thing least productively talked about in the COVID experience. People have been eager to uh, require testing or to provide personal protective equipment. But providing staffing has been arrogantly assumed to be sort of a lowest common denominator thing, like you could throw the National Guard in and they could do it. No, no, no. You try taking care of a dozen dementia patients for eight hours. It takes a lot of skill (laughs) and and, uh, getting them bathed and cleaned and dressed and fed. And then we also gave nursing homes no priority for PPE. We gave them no testing. We insisted upon discharging people from hospitals who were still infectious. 
how many wrongs can you do and hope that they would pull it out? But on the other hand, you know, a lot of these scandals in nursing homes are kind of mitigated by just how fragile and sick these people were to begin with. You know, the average survival in a nursing home is, I mean, it varies across the country, but it's well under a year. So Wow. Why is it? Is that because they're not getting good care or because these people are already very sick and they get placed in a nursing home because they're sort of uh, pre-terminal? Much more the latter. There clearly are some real hell holes as nursing homes, but mostly these are terribly sick, terribly fragile people. They're basically walking a tightrope and, you know, a bad cold would cause death. So a really virulent virus like this is, of course, going to you know, shorten their lives, but often by only a few months. So when we look at this a year in, you know, when we get to next March and April, it may well be that lots of these nursing homes have only a very small increase in the number of deaths that they had as compared to what they were expected to have because a number of people died somewhat earlier than they would have without COVID. But this is a very sick group of people. <laughs> you, know, you have to be pretty ill <laughs> to be in a nursing home. Joanne, besides their medical conditions, what other factors drive people toward nursing homes? Well, the big one is uh, dementia, of course. So two-thirds of the people in U.S. nursing homes have dementia. And actually, just about the same rate are on Medicaid. So it's being impoverished and needing a tremendous amount of personal care. And most families really have a hard time at the point where the person is still somewhat mobile and incontinent of bowel and urine, and often very difficult to manage. You know, it is really, really hard for a 60-year-old man who has never changed a diaper to do the first one on his mother. And Joanne, obviously, it's very hard to work with patients like this. How good are the staff? And if they're not very good, how could they be better? Well, the average wage is still under $12 an hour. That's less than 24000 a year. You know, try living in any urban place in the country at 24000 a year. So most of the staff are working at least two jobs, sometimes two nursing homes, but sometimes you know a nursing home and a shift at a McDonald's or you know, selling something out of their home. The training is varies state to state, but it's on the order of 100 hours of training. This is the hardest job in the community now, the highest rate of uh, personal injury, even up there with uh, construction workers, and yet paid less than $12 an hour, usually with no benefits. Most of the folks in relatively progressive states are on food stamps. Their kids are on Medicaid. So you have a very poor population, a third are immigrants and a third are African-American. So they are often culturally and often linguistically uh, separate from their charge. <laughs> and yet the staffing nationwide, the average nursing home does not meet even CMS standards for staffing. So you know, I think it's 70% are understaffed to the CMS standard, which is only four and a half hours a day per resident. And lots of these folks need a lot more than that. 
So we have skinny staffing with underpaid, overworked people who are getting no respect and who are, by necessity, constantly watching for what other job they ought to be doing. Is this a classic case of we identify these people as essential workers and yet we don't treat them like they are truly essential in the normal meaning of that word? That's for sure. When I started working in a nursing home in 1978, colleagues would say things like, why would you do that? You're a U.S. grad. You could go anywhere. As if anybody who had any choices as a doctor would not work in a nursing home. The people who kept showing up to infected nursing homes deserve a medal of valor and a bonus <laughs> and, and a serious revision of how we put together their jobs. Has the Centers for Disease Control had anything to say about the nursing home situation in the pandemic? Well, they have come out with guidance on infection control, as has CMS. Incredibly, neither of them have said that you really must have advanced care planning. Advanced care planning is about planning in advance for what kind of health care you'd want to receive if you were facing a medical crisis and if you became too sick to make decisions for yourself in real time. I think it's just outrageous that our major federal agencies are still too polite to notice that lots of people living in nursing homes really ought to have plans not to be sent to a hospital. And if you haven't asked them and haven't talked to their family, <laughs> then the, the default is call the ambulance and send them to the hospital. But in well-managed nursing homes, you will have a majority of the residents have plans not to go to the hospital or not to be intubated or both. And in most nursing homes, no one will have been asked. So, Joanne, in, in your view, what, what would advanced care planning constitute? What would be the, the optimal thing we should be doing in nursing homes when it comes to this? Well, in general, we should know who can make decisions on behalf of this person and what are the basic decisions. How far would you go in trying to extend life and to what extent are you mainly focused upon comfort and meaningfulness in whatever ways you can find them? But in the COVID, it's different because people can get into trouble so fast. So somebody you know, who had lunch can be facing death by supper. So you can't count on being able to get to the family. So we need standby decisions for disastrous courses. It doesn't happen to lots of people, but about 8 to 10% of nursing home residents in an outbreak have this calamitous course where, yeah, they may have had a cough or a little fever and they were perking along looking like they were kind of going to do okay. And then their lungs just quit and they are suddenly in big trouble. So we need COVID-specific advanced directives on top of our background advanced directives because you have to know pretty quickly what it is you're doing. Is this going to be a hospice-type course with palliative care or is this going to be a rapid send to the hospital and get intubated? And I think if people realize what they're going to get when intubated, a whole lot would decide against it. Joanne, we've seen these really sad images of family members standing outside of windows, you know, putting up signs for their parents or grandparents. Do you think this policy of isolation has been a success? Has it really protected nursing home residents and, and others, people who work in the homes and the, and the family members? Um, I'm 
somewhat of an annoying outlier on this question. Uh, I think that it is reasonable for public health to have imposed isolation for maybe a few weeks. We are now more than three months in. It is unreasonable for people to be put into what I call solitary confinement, never again to feel a touch of a human never again to, to visibly see their family, except when they are, quote, dying, unquote. Of course, at that point, they probably can't recognize the family. I think it's that, it, I mean, the disability community always says nothing about me without me. And here we have put 1.3 million people into solitary confinement, never having asked them if they would prefer to take their risks of a somewhat shorter lifespan. I think I mean, having taken care of, you know, parents and grandparents at this point of my own, I would just be absolutely up in arms to be banned from visiting or helping out, you know. And there's no recognition in any of the guidelines yet that once the resident has had the infection, they are no longer at risk. I mean, they still have whatever risks they had from whatever else they're carrying. But at that point, why would you possibly ban family from visiting? It's one thing to say we have to shut down visiting and all non-essential persons in nursing homes for, you know, three weeks until we can get a bead on this and rally our troops and increase the staff and get personal protective equipment and figure out what we're doing about testing and so forth. And then we will ask you... <laughs> But instead, it's just been an imposition as if these people have no authority, I didn't want to say rights, but no authority to be expecting to live in community. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. Joanne, you mentioned that there are, what, 1.3, 1.4 million people in nursing homes in this country. What are we to make of that number? Is there some sense in which we could say, oh, that's too many? How did we get to where we are historically and culturally? We have not done any real planning around long-term care. So the usual family that is trying to support you know, an elderly person who is getting to be, let's say, substantially affected by dementia or Parkinson's or whatever, they will have effectively no support in the community. They will run the risk of losing their jobs, losing their insurance, 
The average woman who takes care of her mother loses over a quarter million dollars toward her own retirement. We have made it as hard as possible. And then we also have much smaller families. So in 1900, a grandmother at 85, a great-grandmother at 85, would have more than 60 direct descendants who had no one else that old. Now, if you count every adult in the society, you're already down to one to five, (laughs) not even family-related. So this expectation that somehow families do this really needs some support. The numbers of people who are going to be elderly and disabled at the same time is going to increase enormously as the boomers get into the mid-80s. We will double the number of frail, disabled, elderly people between uh, 2010 and 2030. And where is the preparation for this? (laughs) It's hard to find. Are we set up to support families, small families, and often at a great distance to take care of this person? Have we set up volunteer networks like some countries have, where at least the changing of light bulbs and the bringing in of groceries is done by neighborly volunteers? No, we haven't done that. We have done almost nothing toward the expected change in demographics. So, you know, what is the optimal nursing home number? Well, right now it's probably substantially lower. If we provided that kind of support, we could probably get well under a million. But when we double the number of frail elders, we will be very lucky to hold the line at 1.3. Are you basically saying that we really should downsize our nursing homes and provide more support for aging in place, which means aging in a home environment, whether your own home or with a family? We should at least have that be eminently possible so that it's easy to choose to do that. In my view, there are four sorts of people who need facility-based care. There are people who are so brain-damaged or demented that from their own perspective, it is hard to imagine that it matters whether they're in a home-like setting or not, and it is just much more efficient to take care of them in group settings. There are people who are terribly lonely and for whom going to a nursing home is like going to summer camp. I've had so many residents who say, boy, if I had known it was like this, I would not have resisted for so long. You know, food shows up, activities show up, there are friends around, this is wonderful. Those people should have that available. People who are near death should have inpatient hospice available if they don't have a home that really could support them. So those folks need to be there. And then the people just outside of a hospital, where it's really just an extension of the hospitalization. So it's wound care and and rehab after a hip replacement or something of the sort. Those are the four groups that should be using nursing homes. And they should be kept as small as possible. We should be keeping people in their homes whenever it's reasonable to do so. But we do have to confront that once a person needs 24-7 care, it costs a quarter million dollars a year. Nursing homes cost less than half that. It's four full-time equivalents at $30,000 a piece, plus the medical care, plus the housing, food, and upkeep. And it ends up being, I'm sorry, it's five $30,000 a year persons plus their benefits. So there you go. You know, if you need 24-7 care, it is much more efficient to do it in a facility than it is at home. 
that's very hard for people to stomach. People want it to be cheaper to be home, but it's only cheaper to be home if you have enough unpaid, mostly family help to be able to be at home reasonably safely. So, Joanne, if you could design the system, what would it look like? You gave us the four categories of people that go into nursing homes. So we have a a nursing home population, but it's much smaller than the 1.3 million. So what does the payment and the delivery system for long-term care look like under the Joanne Lynn administration? Oh, that's This branches into a number of things. I'll try to be real short. First off, you have to fix financing. You have to have a a federally sponsored social insurance covering catastrophic long-term care costs so that people can reasonably save for a short period of long-term care. Second thing we need is housing. In Washington, D.C., only about 1% of the available housing units are accessible to a wheelchair. In 1985, Singapore required all new housing to be wheelchair accessible. So now they have no problem finding appropriate housing for people. We have not even started doing that. So we need housing. We need it to be affordable. We need to be able to deliver food. Most big cities have more than a six-month waiting list for home-delivered food for people who are acknowledged to need it. That is outrageous. We have to be able to get food to people. We then need to be able to support both the paid and the unpaid caregivers. Then we need uh, transportation. Many cities now provide elder care transportation, but they do it on the public transportation. So you have to be able to make it to a bus and wait until the bus comes. We need door-to-door transportation for people who are more disabled. Then we need what I call beefed-up primary care because most people in their 50s really have only one major problem. In the 80s, that ain't true. (laughs) Most of my patients would have at least five or six major problems. So you need primary care that is really good at depression, dementia, delirium, and heart failure, kidney failure, (laughs) cancers, and can develop comprehensive care plans that reflect this person and their family's priorities and resources, which is quite an art form. You know, it isn't just, do you want an intubation or not? It's, you know, how are you going to live? So, Joanne, do you think COVID has the possibility of making this very important structural shift that you're calling for? Or do you think we're going to just muddle through and then turn our attention away? I'm betting my life on the possibility of the former. I'm spending all of my effort to try to engineer options, uh, get people talking about it. And I hope there are other people who are. I hope you two will. (laughs) It is really important that we not just throw away old people. I mean, we run the risk. There's a famous health affairs article showing that this was before COVID, that by 2029, the average middle-class person would be unable to afford housing, food, and medical care. Yeah. Mm. That should have sent chills through all of us. <laughs> you know, and yet, you know, we have a culture that is, has a very hard time thinking beyond, at best, two or three years ahead, <laughs> often no more than two or three months ahead, so thinking 30 years ahead is really a hard effort. But if we don't do that, 
if we do nothing and just skate through and we get through COVID and it becomes just a background noise and, and we, you know, slide along, we will have huge numbers of people who die miserably in old age because they don't have housing and food, because they don't have basic care. Mm. And, you know, I hope that that would shock the conscience. You know, all of prudence implies that we ought to have been doing this 20 years ago and that we have a very narrow window to get it done. And if we don't, we will either have to learn to not notice that we are setting large numbers of older people up to live miserably and die, or we will bankrupt our economy. <laughs> or we'll find, you know, some balance between two miserable endpoints. Whereas if we plan now, we could actually do it right. As Joanne just said, we live in a culture that has a really hard time thinking any further ahead than two or three years, maybe even two or three months. Zeke, why do you think it's so hard to plan on a longer timescale? If we don't figure this out, the consequences are going to be pretty dire. Well, I think we do have a problem in our political system because, you know, representatives get elected every two years, presidents every four years, senators every six years, and they're constantly in the re-election mode, and that makes long-term planning problematic. Plus, long-term care is one of these things no one really wants to think about if you're a young person. You don't want to think about when you're 75 or 80. And if you're an old person, you would prefer to avoid it. You are fearful of becoming dependent. You're fearful of the cost. But thinking about it and concentrating on it, you know, makes it more real, I think. And you want to escape that. Do you think this is a part of a bigger problem? You know, the world faces so many issues now, not just the United States, like race relations and climate change. Why can't a democracy face the, this kind of long-term planning problem? I think it is, a, it, it is to some degree a structural problem in the way we have created politics. And maybe we're going to have to change politics so that this focus on the present is not so important. And I, you know, I hate to say it, but I do think crises focus the mind in a way that normal life tends not to. And so it may be that we're going to have to keep having these mini crises to actually prompt us to have longer term time horizons in our policy process. It does seem like in bioethics, as somebody said, you know, we deal with scandals and tragedies and they make change. And it, it would be unfortunate, as Dr. Lin said, if that was the case with this problem. But that may be the way we go. Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content, executive produced by Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, that's me, and Zeke Emanuel, created by Jonathan Moreno and Zeke Emanuel. Our managing producer is Jasmine Romero. Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Baer. And special thanks to Ruby Friedman. If you like this episode, make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also let us know what you think by tweeting at us at Make the Call Pod. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe.
You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter. Or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary.